Welcome to Skim This. Over the past few days, conflict between Israel and Palestine has escalated. We'll break down the latest from this month's conflict and provide some key historical context. Then, the GOP is playing musical chairs, and the FDA has authorized vaccines for teens. Later on the show, a major pipeline in the U.S. got hacked over the weekend. We'll tell you WTF a ransomware attack is, why they're so common, and why the U.S. is so often a target. Also, it's AAPI Heritage Month. We'll talk to the co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate about the increase in hate incidents against Asian Americans. And finally, stick around till the end of the show. We're talking about screen time. Like, why can't I put this thing down? We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. The news is telling us, and our social feeds are telling us, there's one big story this week, and it's playing out in Israel and in Palestinian territories occupied by Israel. And at the time we're publishing this, this already big story could easily become a bigger one, with several days of fighting looking like it could turn into an all-out war. There's also no easy way for us to explain this. So instead, we're going to take this story apart in pieces. We'll also try to draw a line between the sparks that started the current crisis this month and the dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute that go back decades. First, the most recent sparks. One reason there's a crisis unfolding now has to do with Israel threatening six Palestinian families with eviction from their homes. These families live in East Jerusalem, in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah, where they've lived and raised their children for decades. Sheikh Jarrah has been home to Palestinian families since the 1950s. They were moved there after Israel's War of Independence in the late 1940s. That war displaced a lot of people around Jerusalem. Jewish families in parts of East Jerusalem were forced out when the Jordanian military captured that neighborhood. And Palestinians, with homes in West Jerusalem and other cities that became part of the state of Israel, were displaced by the Israeli military. That amount of displacement is complicated enough. Complicating it further is that some of the land that Palestinian homes were built on during the 1950s had previous Jewish owners. And even though Palestinian tenants paid rent or even purchased the land during the decades they lived there, heirs of the home's original owners, with the support of outside groups, have waged a long legal battle to take the properties back. So, if you've heard some people boiling down the bigger crisis in the news this month to a property dispute or a private real estate dispute, that's why. Though, it's pretty clear there's a lot more on the line than that. Because there's some important historical context here. In recent decades, Israeli settlements have been springing up all over the West Bank, the swath of land between Israel and Jordan that's home to around 2.5 million Palestinians, but which is occupied by Israel. Palestinian families there are regularly evicted from homes, where they've lived for decades, and then replaced with Israeli settlements, walls, and roads connecting new Israeli territory. The end result of this is that the West Bank in many places doesn't look like Palestinian territory at all. Instead, it's been compared to Swiss cheese, in which bits of Palestinian land here and there are increasingly surrounded by Israeli settlements and cut off from one another. More than 150 countries at the United Nations have said Israel is acting as an occupying power in Palestinian territory, and that settlement activity is illegal under international law. But Israel, largely with the support of the U.S. and especially the administration of President Trump, has continued expanding settlements and chipping away at the land left for Palestinians. 
We should also point out, while Israeli law allows Jews who lost their land in the War of Independence to go to court to get their land back from Palestinian families, the opposite isn't true. Meaning, a displaced Palestinian family that used to live in West Jerusalem before the war can't go to court and have the current residents of their old home evicted. Some of that background might help explain why Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah were so successful in mobilizing support this month after protesting their eviction. Okay, so that's one piece of the historical puzzle. Let's get back to the present. Last week, Palestinians and Israeli police clashed in parts of East Jerusalem, including at a holy site for both Jews and Muslims. Then this week, the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which operates in a different part of Palestinian territory called the Gaza Strip, started firing rockets into Israel. As of the time we published this, seven Israelis have been killed, along with 87 Palestinians, after the Israeli military launched retaliatory strikes of its own. Hamas and Israel exchanging rocket fire isn't exactly a new pattern. Israel operates a missile defense system called the Iron Dome to protect itself from rockets, and it's gotten a lot of use in recent years. But facing almost unprecedented rocket attacks this week, Israel's military has responded with major attacks of its own. It's targeted what it says are locations used by Hamas, but it's also destroyed entire buildings. And there are now reports of the Israeli military gathering near the Gaza Strip, where approximately 2 million Palestinians live. For now, we might still be able to call the fighting this week just a flare-up, but some experts are saying the situation doesn't look too different from a war. So where does that leave us? Likely in a wait-and-see environment. The United States and the United Nations have been appealing for calm. The UN, along with Egypt, Israel's neighbor, is reportedly trying to negotiate a ceasefire, but Israel says it won't talk to Hamas. And Hamas says we're in an open-ended conflict now. Meanwhile, tensions within Israel are only rising. On Wednesday night, clashes erupted between Israeli Arabs and Jews in what some outlets are calling the most serious spike in civil unrest within Israel since the year 2000. Which means this conflict, the latest of many historical conflicts, could be different than previous ones, especially since it's put a renewed focus on Palestinian issues. Maybe you saw a Palestinian solidarity march this week, or a graphic on your social media feed about what's going on in Sheikh Jarrah. But it's not certain what that outside attention on this conflict will translate to diplomatically, even if there's a relatively new occupant in the White House. For updates on the conflict, check out our daily newsletter. You can sign up at theskim.com. Let's get to two headlines from this week's news and give you some context about what's going on. First up... On Capitol Hill, a clear majority of House Republicans voted to remove Congresswoman Liz Cheney from her leadership post yesterday. Here's the context. Even if you aren't from Wyoming, this is kind of a big deal for a few reasons. Representative Cheney, who, yes, is the daughter of former Veep Dick Cheney, was the third-ranking Republican member of the House. Until Wednesday, which is when her Republican colleagues decided to oust her from that leadership role in a closed-door vote. The reason? Cheney has been an outspoken critic of former President Trump and his unsubstantiated lies about the election. Cheney even voted to impeach President Trump in the trial that followed the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But that vote may have helped secure Cheney's fate now. 
It's kind of unusual for a political party to take down one of their own. And it's a move that political commentators say shows mixed messaging about the GOP strategy going into midterms. That it's both trying to unite the party, but is also showing little room for disagreement, especially when it comes to Trump. Okay, here's our next headline. The FDA granted emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine in the 12 to 15-year-old age group. Now, some context. On Monday, the FDA said kids aged 12 to 15 can get Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. This comes after Pfizer announced that in clinical trials, its vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 for that age group, and with the same side effects as adults. Now, NPR reports that 87% of the U.S. population is eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine. And this week's authorization could be good news for schools as they return to in-person learning, as well as for kids who probably just miss hanging out with their friends. Though if vaccines aren't required before the start of the school year, we may not see a lot of families making appointments. According to a recent Kaiser Family Foundation study, only three in 10 parents say they'll get their kids an appointment ASAP. A lot of other parents are taking a more wait-and-see approach. Tonight, we are learning more about a cyber attack forcing the shutdown of one of the main pipelines supplying gas and diesel fuel to the East Coast. Last week, the Colonial Pipeline, a major gas pipeline running from Texas to New York, shut down all operations. And no, the pipeline didn't just take an unannounced PTO day. The company that operates it decided to turn the pipeline off after its computer network was targeted in a ransomware cyber attack. Experts are now calling this cyber attack one of the largest disruptions by hackers to critical U.S. infrastructure. This shutdown has created gas shortages and caused states like Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia to even declare a state of emergency. All of these headlines and the disruption to people's day-to-day lives had us wondering, what exactly is ransomware? And how is something I've never heard of before on the internet capable of causing a real-life emergency across big parts of the U.S.? To try to make sense of things, it helps to think of the internet kind of like the Wild West. And these ransomware attacks are like that outlaw group who comes through the town and starts causing a lot of chaos. Ransomware is a pretty established industry, and there are a bunch of criminal syndicates, we call them ransomware gangs, that conduct these types of attacks. Lily Hay Newman is a senior writer at Wired, where she's been writing about digital privacy and hacking. Newman told us these digital outlaws usually hack different organizations with one thing in mind, money. In terms of this attack and the vast, vast majority of ransomware attacks, they're criminal profit generating. The goal is to target organizations that can afford to pay and to set the ransom at the right price point from the attacker's perspective. So it's making a lot of money for them, but still doable for the victim. Basically, these gangs hold digital infrastructure hostage until the organization under attack pays up. And while this week we're talking about a pipeline being hacked, lately ransomware attacks have targeted a lot of different kinds of businesses, including newspapers, schools, and even hospitals. Here's how a company typically finds out they're under attack. Someone will start to see could be a black screen or a blue screen that has some type of ransom demand. So it'll say 
you've been owned or you've been hit or ransomware gang were the coolest. And then it says either here's the ransom demand or here's how to find out the demand. And there's often like a chat or a way to get in touch with the ransom actor. But people will start seeing something strange happening on a lot of the computers around them. And the malware is infecting more and more computers on the network and encrypting all the data and all the files on the network so that the computers are basically unusable because you need to pay the ransom to get the decryption key to release the systems. Newman told us these types of attacks are appealing to criminal groups for the same reason we like working on our couches. Convenience. First of all, You don't need to handle the logistics of being in person for a lot of these operations. You can be the ghost hand reaching in from afar. Additionally, developing hacking capabilities, cyber weapons, is potentially less overhead than developing physical weaponry. For some of those reasons, cybercrime was already becoming more common. And then the pandemic hit. Cybercriminals started targeting hospitals in particular. Ransomware attacks on hospitals and healthcare providers reportedly jumped nearly 50% last fall, leaving already overburdened healthcare workers in serious distress. Now criminals are trying to extort money from their organization and potentially endanger patients on top of everything else that was going on with the pandemic. It's just really horrifying and it's hard to believe you're standing there having to record patient notes and do everything on paper backups because some random criminals were trying to extort your hospital. The U.S. in particular is a popular target for cybercrime. It's the most targeted country by cybercriminals, probably in part because it's wealthy, but also because it's historically been bad at protecting itself. Common ransomware targets like schools, local governments, and hospitals use old-school software, making it pretty easy for the digital outlaws to get in. And often, they just don't have the resources or capabilities to invest in more sophisticated software or to create copies of their digital records. They may not make it a priority or realize its importance, and they may think they're doing enough, but they're not really doing enough. There's still a lot of gaping holes and kind of low-hanging fruit that allows these attackers to get in. But Newman told us in order to reduce these cyber attacks, organizations will have to make some changes, like requiring employees to use strong passwords, password managers, or multi-step authentication, or backing up digital files often. All of which sounds nice, but... Unfortunately, is sort of easier said than done. And beyond steps that individual companies can or should take, Newman told us the government can try to step in here too. It's been clear to security professionals for years that there needs to be some type of prioritization of ransomware attacks and other types of cybercrime to more meaningfully deter this behavior. If there's no money in it, criminals will stop, right? Bloomberg is reporting that Colonial Pipeline paid the hackers a few million dollars. And that's pretty common. A lot of targets of ransomware reportedly do reach into their wallets, often because getting software up and running is critical, so companies literally can't afford to go offline. Another thing making deterrence difficult? The U.S. government can't physically attack back against cyber attackers, the way they would with a military strike. So cyber warfare is going to be an uphill battle to win. 
Meanwhile, the costs of this week's cyber attack are still piling up. Experts are bracing for continued fallout, including planes at a standstill without fuel, high gas prices for consumers, and even a disruption to the COVID-19 vaccine supply. Which all shows it's not just your IT guy who needs to be paying attention to these cyber attacks. People are hopeful that the Colonial Pipeline incident may be a true turning point simply because it's so dramatic and also it may raise fuel prices at the pump for the millions of Americans. So unfortunately, in a way, it's kind of sad that this might be the one that creates change versus all of these hospital attacks for all these years. But whatever it takes to get people to take this really seriously and figure out solutions is important. May marks Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. This year, the visibility of AAPI Heritage Month is probably higher than it's ever been, but so are the rates of anti-Asian hate incidents. Most of those involve verbal harassment in public places and at work, but violent incidents are on the rise, too. Physical assaults have gone up 64% in one year. Suddenly, he was knocked to the ground and brutally attacked with a flurry of punches. More than 6,600 anti-Asian hate incidents since March 2020. Stabbing two Asian women who were waiting for a bus. A shooting spree at three massage parlors in the Atlanta area. Most of the victims were women of Asian descent. This week, grand juries in Georgia indicted the man accused of carrying out mass shootings at spas around Atlanta on domestic terror and murder charges. In addition, a prosecutor announced they'd also be asking a jury to add a hate crimes charge. It's reportedly the first time that a 2020 Georgia hate crimes bill has been used to push for increased criminal penalties. But this is just one case, and tough sentencing alone isn't going to fix this problem. Not to mention, state legislation can only do so much when the AAPI community is being targeted nationwide. Last month, the U.S. Senate passed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which would require the Justice Department to appoint an official to speed up the review of potential hate crimes. It would also commit more resources to tracking hate crimes and developing education campaigns to reduce them. For now, the bill is in limbo until the House of Representatives gets around to it. In the meantime, organizations like Stop AAPI Hate are documenting hate and providing community resources. My name is Manju Gulgurney. I am executive director of the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council and a co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Could you, for our audience listening, tell us what Stop AAPI Hate does? We started in March of last year because we saw the emergence of anti-API hate, anti-Asian hate against our community, really sort of following the beginnings of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. And we first had approached the Attorney General of California to ask if they would collect data on this, and we're told that they rely on local law enforcement. So after that, we decided, well, hey, let's collect the data ourselves and see what's going on. Can you connect the dots for me on how gathering this data and this information actually reduces the number of hate crimes committed? 
what we're trying to do essentially is to better understand what's happening, mm. right? And I should tell you that they're reporting to us in a way that they're not reporting to other nonprofits, to government agencies, to law enforcement. So for example, here in Los Angeles, we've received 360 incident reports, whereas law enforcement's received a handful. So we're a trusted source in the community. And when we get the data, we do a rigorous analysis of it, and then we share it with the public and with policymakers. And our hope really is to do four things, obviously serve as a reporting center. Number two is to provide resources to the community through our website. Number three is to provide direct assistance. And then lastly, it is to really begin to change policies. What are the laws that we need in place to address the hate that's happened, really with an eye toward preventing it? Long term. And so we think that if we have stronger civil rights laws, if we have really a civil rights infrastructure for addressing these hate incidents, we will see this decrease and hopefully even diminish. The Senate passed the Stop COVID 19 Hate Crimes Act. Do you think that act goes far enough? And what do you wish it included that it doesn't? I think it's certainly a promising step. What I see as the limitation is that it only addresses hate crimes. And when we look at the Stop AAPI hate data, the vast majority of what has been reported to us, upwards of 90 to 95 percent, are hate incidents and not hate crimes. These are acts of verbal harassment, of discrimination in the workplace, and housing, in public accommodations. So that's what I'd like to see more of, is really addressing the hate incidents for all marginalized communities, including LGBTQ, African-American, Latinx, Jewish communities. I think there are a number of us who have experienced hate incidents and that needs to be properly documented and addressed. What are some of the steps that people like someone's neighbor or their best friend can take to stop AAPI hate right now? First off, you know, if you see something, say something. If you see someone being discriminated against at a grocery store, say something to the manager. If you see an individual sending racist memes online, say something about it. But there's even more, which is we can all go to our city council folks, demand action there, a simple resolution to condemn hate, and then taking further steps, right? Like what laws do we need in place? We know from the 2020 election how important civic engagement is. So it's up to each and every one of us to be actively involved against not only hate directed toward Asian Americans, but also against police violence against so many of the issues that are impacting our communities right now. So I would just urge your listeners to take part in our democracy. It's not a spectator sport. To check out The Skim's complete interview with Manju Gogarni and the rest of our coverage of AAPI Heritage Month, visit theskim.com. Before we go today, we wanted to talk about screen time. Like, why has ours skyrocketed recently? And is all of this screen time actually bad for us? Hi, my name is Wendy Zuckerman, and I'm a science journalist and host of the podcast Science Versus. 
She recently did an episode of Science Versus on screen time and its health effects, inspired in part by changes in her own behavior. I look at my screen a lot, a lot. Like sometimes it's literally from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. Zuckerman says more than a year into the pandemic, it's easy to see how she and we ended up here. Literally, scientists were telling us the best thing you can do for yourself and your community is stay at home. And basically, since I don't do knitting or make sourdough bread, that meant staring at a screen. I just sort of figured there's really nothing else to be doing right now. But when you combine that with back-to-back Zoom calls for work, it really starts to add up. So much so that when we asked you guys about the pandemic habit you most want to change, a lot of you said this exact thing, too much screen time. Before we talk about the mental and physical side effects of screen time, we'll admit, sometimes it feels like screens are kind of in control of our life. Like, are we literally addicted to screens? All right, addiction is this super messy area of research. The American Psychiatric Association only recognizes one type of behavioral addiction, to gambling, which leaves things like shopping addiction, exercise addiction, porn, video game, or just general screen time addiction technically unrecognized. Maybe don't worry so much if science says it's addictive or not. It's kind of how you personally feel around your screens. The next thing we wanted to know about screens is what are they doing to our eyes? Zuckerman's team looked at whether screen use in childhood led to needing glasses in adulthood. There's two things going on that means that spending a lot of time on a screen might increase your risk of needing glasses, particularly when you're a kid. One is that you're looking at things close up. So if you were the sort of kid that was reading a lot of books in school, so not looking at screens, that would also do the same thing. There's not anything magical about a screen. It's just the fact that you're looking at something close up. And the other problem is that you're not going outside. And what the research these days is telling us is that as a kid being outside in the bright sun can be quite protective and can protect your eyes from becoming nearsighted. So maybe it's not screens themselves, but how we use them and what we don't do when we use them that causes the most problems. Wait a second, but what about the dreaded blue light? There are all kinds of claims out there about what this terrible blue light from your screens is doing and very little evidence for most of it. We found like a tiny bit of evidence that maybe looking at screens late at night might keep you up by a little bit. We're talking 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But really, it it didn't seem like this blue light thing was something worth going out to buy glasses for. But if the screens themselves aren't addicting and their blue light isn't costing us a good night's sleep, why are we always blaming screens? We had the whole team researching for this episode because there's so much research on every single question we had. And on every one of those points, we had all heard the headlines. They increased depression. And then we would jump into the research and see one study would show, yes, screen time linked to depression. Another study would say, no, we don't see this link at all. And it was basically for every claim that people had. These sort of bigger mental health claims or what it's doing to the children claims. So mixed. And yet so many negative headlines. And I don't want to crap on the media because I am the media. So that feels like a bad idea. But I I do think, I don't know, negative ideas sell. And there's a truthiness to it because screens are absolutely everywhere. And so it feels like something very easy to blame if there's a problem 
if you're worried about something, point to the screen. Instead of doing that or feeling guilty when your screen time goes up, Zuckerman says there's one thing you can try to give yourself a break. One of the things that experts recommend is just making sure that every now and then just look out your window for 20 20 seconds so you're not staring at something so close. All right, I could use a break from this computer. So let's leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and by me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>